Welcome to a Black Man's Sketch. This is our Black History edition for 2022, where we bring great leaders to our beloved community. We also give thanks and gratitude to our ancestors that paved the way for our freedom. It is their fight that gives us hope to continue to challenge injustice, educate our children, and fight for the most marginalized members of society. We are here at Ujama today with coaches Daniel Baker, Andre Knight. We are also honored to have one of our Ujama men with us, Mr. Cedric Smith, on the show today. <laughs> Family, let's start by sharing with our audience what Black History Month means to you in 2022. That's significant, gentlemen, where we have been through a roller coaster two years of dealing with deadly coronavirus, the murder of Brother George Floyd, the Derek Chauvin trial, increased crime in our communities, high suicide rate, and it goes on and on from there. I'd like to give each of you a moment to talk about what gives you hope at this time. And I'll start off with the first person on the screen, Brother Andre. Thank you, Otis. What gives me hope? Well, first off, my faith gives me hope because with, all, with God, all things are possible. The trailblazers of my elders before me gives me hope. They have paid the way. They have made tremendous breakthroughs despite the evil opposition that was before them. So it's no way that I can have hope and know that the results for my people will rely on total restoration of us emotionally, financially, and so forth. That's what gives me hope. Thank you, brother. Danielle. Greetings. There's so many things that give me hope. Uh, we've had a really uh, difficult uh, circumstance, just our whole worldwide in the last two years. It's been chaotic. I was myself uh, was losing hope, um, but it was really important for me uh, to stay connected as uh, Andre with my, my faith walk. Uh, God is the center of my all. And uh, that's what I believe who runs and controls the world. But I also hope I found hope in the fact that in this uh, terrible last two years, uh, no one can turn their face to what they've seen. So I have hope that the world has seen a lot of ugliness. A lot of ugliness has been hidden, buried away and all that good stuff. But they can't hide what has been occurring in the last two years. So I find some hope in there. I find hope every day we come into work and see these young black men that need our love, need our accountability and need our support. And again, it's that time of year where it blows me away. Uh, again, Dr. Lafayette was such an honor to be down south. Um, it was such a memorable trip to me. Um, I believe Alabama is sacred ground. And, and upon my return, I just really the heaviness of the fact that we're still dealing with voting in 2022. That kind of begins to cloud my hope. But uh, survival is in our DNA and, and, and yes. faith is in God and our hope is still be present in 2022. Thank you, Danielle. And it's a pleasure to invite to the, um, to the table of uh, Cedric Smith, who has the distinction of being Ujama's 2021 Ujama Man of the Year. Thank you, Otis. It's an honor to be here with you fellas. I would say, um, first and foremost, as Andre did, my faith gives me hope just knowing that God is in control and that no weapon formed against me or my community or my people can prosper because everything that we have fought through and prevailed against, we always come out on the other side victorious. So my faith in God definitely keeps me rooted my children give me hope. I once read a quote from Dr. King and he said, only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I wrote that on my wall just because when I came home at first it was really dark. Um, I was released from prison in 2019 and um, it was rough at first, it was really dark and I didn't have hope. The brothers at Ujama, Ujama Place is actually a really ultimate source of hope for me just for the simple fact of um, anything that I may lack or the things that I may need spiritually even or mentally that those brothers are there to um, reinforce my grounding and that gives me hope that the community hasn't given up on each other although we face a system that may have given up on us I know that we still love each other and that gives me a lot of hope. Thank you Cedric thank you so much for that and all the brothers that shared their message of hope um, I think it's imperative that we do understand that there's um, a hope that drives us and our faith and pulling together as a people. So it's very important that we have that. So I thank you for sharing it with our listening audience. But at this time, I'd like to introduce uh, a very, very special guest, a brother that's been in the struggle for a very long time. His name is, is actually synonymous 
with the uh, work and growth of the civil rights movement. So it's a pleasure to have on our podcast today our special guest. Dr. Bernard Lafayette has led a life of service by putting his own life on hold to uphold the values of beliefs that all persons, all people are created equal. Dr. Lafayette was a student activist in Nashville, Tennessee, participated in the sit-in campaigns in the 1960s and a long-time staff member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, as we refer to as SNCC. Bernard Lafayette gained a reputation as a steadfast proponent of nonviolence before Dr. Martin Luther King offered him a position of program director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and that was in 1967. Dr. Lafayette was born in Tampa, Florida. In 1958, he moved to Nashville to attend American Baptist Theological Seminary. As a freshman there, he began attending weekly meetings arranged by James Lawson, I know that name is very familiar with a lot of you. Uh, Dr. Lawson, a representative of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, who had contacted Dr. King during the Montgomery bus boycott. Throughout 1958 and 1959, in partnership with uh, the Nashville uh, SEL affiliate, Mr. Lawson taught nonviolence techniques to Lafayette and his fellow nonviolence students, including John Lewis, James Bevel, and Diane Nash, all names that that dot our memory and of our ancestors that paved the way to where we are today. Dr. Lafayette was energized by Lawson classes and a weekend retreat at the Highlander Folk School. Dr. Lafayette and his friends began conducting sit-ins at segregated restaurants and businesses in 1959. And uh, I'd like to just point out that these were not just just spontaneous sit-ins and activities. This was well-plotted, well-thought-out, a lot of meetings, a lot of prayer went to each of these events. When Ella Baker, under auspices of the SCLC, organized a conference of students on Easter weekend in 1960, Dr. Lafayette attended this conference and gave birth to SNCC. So without a lot of ado, uh, we would like honored to have Dr. Dr. Lafayette with us. If I just say that uh, I have a very personal relationship with Dr. Lafayette, and um, and I see that his wife Kate has joined us. We're so glad to see Kate. And uh, for the listening audience, if I can just say that um, a lot of you know that I attended Gustavus Adolphus College. Bernard and Kate was on campus to bring not only that um, that intergenerational experience, but also the leadership for the black students there, and brought just a tremendous amount of education to all in that part of the state. And um, and they were mentors, advisors. And it really did bridge the education gap that we had at Gustavus. So it's great to see both of you. And thank you, Kate, for joining us. Uh, this is just a pleasure. And I'm sure that you are filling in the gaps with Dr. Lafayette to leave out here. So we're going to take a very quick break and come back and, um, and come back and we'll hear from our famed Dr. Bernard Lafayette. I'm Otis Zanders, President and CEO of Ujama Place. We continue our mission of transforming the lives of the most marginalized population in society, black men ages 18 to 30. While the ultimate goal is to dismantle all racist systems, the reality is these systems, designed to keep Ujama men down, are still in place. We on a mission. Now let that play. Part of our program model titled The Theory of Transformation, which all you gentlemen men receive, is education on how to navigate these systems and come out on top. Simultaneously, the Ujama men and our entire organization remain steadfast in advocating for the change we want to see. Can we start with your book? The book that you penned called In Peace and Freedom which tells your story of your journey to Selma. The forward of this beloved book was written and penned by John Lewis, who referenced your history of the struggle, commitment, and hope. What would you say to our beloved community in Minnesota to understand the times we are living in today? Well, first, I want to thank you for inviting me to be a part of this. It's bring back some very important uh, memories and what I want to first of all say that while I've done a lot of teaching, I never cease to be a student because I continue to learn and I continue to appreciate and discover 
uh, new things that continue to broaden my understanding of what this is all about. So I would say that uh, the thing that's important uh, to uh, remember is that research and also being able to experiment is a part of the movement. And it certainly uh, made a, a difference in terms of the change that uh, occurred. And in order to continue to uh, do the work that we're doing, you have to decide what your specific role is. In other words, you can't do everything. So you have to decide what you're going to focus on and then always include the questions and the experiments that you uh, want to put in place. Like in Nashville, I learned from James Lawson that um, you constantly uh, in training, and that's what the students were doing in Nashville. We met on a regular basis, but we were actually planning strategy, but we experimenting. Like for example, the first uh, sit-in we had in Nashville yes. was not a protest. We sat in, but we were not protesting. <laughs> we were testing. We wanted to see how the others uh, who didn't want us to be there, how they would behave. Yes. We wanted to see how the waitress would respond. And we wanted to see how the uh, people, young people uh, who were white, we, we call them hoodlums, but, you know, that uh, we never labeled them that way. Yes. And how they would react. Then the most important thing we wanted to experiment with was how we were going to respond. That's what you need to know. <laughs> Before you get into a situation, you need to already know how you're going to respond. Because that's going to make all the difference. Because sometimes people uh, forget about their goals and they simply react to the present situation. And the question is whether or not your reaction and your behavior is going to move you closer to achieving your goals. Yes. That's what you need to know. Because yes. you just can't protest based on your own nerves and think you're going to change anything. Mm. No, you're not even helping yourself. Yes. Now, that's the thing we did. So what we did was we sat in and then we returned to the church and analyze what we did, and we call it uh, uh, social action. And that said, we also, what we did was what we call role play. Mm -hmm. We played that role over again, and some of us act like hoodlums, and, and uh, we did that. We had white students participating with us, and see the white people were served at the lunch counters. And guess what they did when they got their food? Passed it down to us. <laughs> oh my goodness. This was so disturbing to the white people <laughs> because they were afraid to serve the white students because so that's my point. All right. That's the first point I want to make is that you must use your opportunities to train and be trained. So what is your goal? Your goal is to win people over. So how did we win people over? Is we behaved in such a way that they had a different attitude towards us. Yeah, because we act a certain way. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't what they were used to. Well, long story short, and then I'll move to the next one. Here's what happened in Nashville. They bombed uh, our lawyer's home, Luby. And guess what? Our lawyer was on the city council. Here, they bombed an official's home. Mm. Okay, so we had a march, a protest march, but we made sure it was silent. And you'll see a photo, you know, museums and stuff with Diane Nash and, uh, you know, myself and C.T. Vivian leading the march. And that was a silent march. No singing, no shouting, nothing. We didn't even have signs. We had a quiet march to the courthouse. 
okay, yes. in City Hall, in the same area, and we brought the mayor there. Now, he wouldn't have come if there had been a mob, but he actually came and met with us because we had a quiet, okay, and we asked for a meeting with him, and he came out and met with us. Now, that's the other thing I want to make this point. When people take positions, many times they take positions because of their position, okay, for political reasons. Diane was good, okay, that's why she was always our spokesperson for the Nashville movement as well as the Freedom Rides and stuff like that. She was an English major, and she also was a person who knew how to get to the soul of people. So you're not just trying to get the mind changed. You're trying to get them to commit their souls as individual. So she asked him a question, you, Mayor, uh, okay, and, uh, as a person, okay, what is your feeling, in a sense, about desegregation? And he said, yes, as a person. You see, so people take positions because of their position, and then they take positions if you can get them to give their personal feelings. And that's what the mayor did. And that was the thing that caused a change to take place in Nashville, because that's what we were going after, folks, personal, okay? Thank you. And you, uh, in the book, you really delve deep into this issue, and that's very great to hear. And uh, which is a good segue to, if, if you don't mind, just just having a comment. I think uh, you, uh, the thing you shared, you have a great insight to what you were thinking against our eyes to shape the movement, to get support, to bring attention to to, um, to the transgression that was taking place. But if you may, how do you compare what's taking place in our right for equality and justice with the civil rights movement of the 60s? Are there any distinct differences that you see, any lessons learned from the past that we should be implementing today? Yes. One of the things that uh, I really appreciate is the fact that uh, men are very smart, okay? And the reason they're smart is because they look to women to give leadership. That's smart. Yes. Okay? <laughs> because women are, <laughs> are able to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> women, well, from a, you know, physiological point of view, they have more nodules on their brain. <laughs> so they're, they're dealing with, uh, you know, complicated things. Mm-hmm. And they can do more than one thing at a time. You know, Rosa Parks. Oh, nothing wouldn't have happened if Montgomery had been for no Rosa Parks and the other women who participated, okay, on the college campus and stuff like that. And then uh, Ella Baker, you talk about SNCC. Must never talk about SNCC without mentioning the fact that Ella Baker was the one that organized SNCC. Yes. in uh, North Carolina because, and she had it there at, at her college. That's where SNCC was formed, okay? Yes. Because she uh, did that. Now, uh, you had uh, Connie Curry. She was a young white woman who was very close to Ella Baker. Yes. And they're the ones that uh, really were our advisors of SNCC all those years. Those are the advisors, okay? So my point is, We must appreciate the fact that's why women can carry on three conversations at the same time. Okay? And you find men saying, could could you wait just a minute? I'm trying to hear what that person got to say. But no, women can multitask. That's the point. Okay? If you turn them loose on some jazz, oh, okay? That's what I'm talking about. They can blend things together. And I just discovered this when I was in graduate school, because I know why. I have five sisters. Unfortunately, I lost one yesterday, older sister. But uh, my sisters, I listen to them. And you know what? They repeat themselves. That's why women have a great memory of things, because they repeat, okay? Yes. And so, therefore, uh, they uh, have... A, a full understanding of things. 
And that's what we're talking about here. As we go forward with the movement, it just can't be our personal discontent. That's not, that's protest, but that might not be social change. It might make you feel good, but that doesn't change anything. Okay, we'll talk more about it later. Thank you. Thank you for that. You know, uh, your, your book is, again, an interesting read, but throughout the book, you give a, you pay a lot of homage. You give a lot of credit to a lot of people that influenced your life and uh, that made an impact on your journey. And just to name a few, you talked about Dr. King, of course. Uh, also, uh, John Lewis, as well as uh, Reverend James Lawson. Uh, could you maybe give our listeners a little, little backdrop of what these people meant to you and uh, how they influenced you uh, as you was growing up? To be able to study with these people, observe them uh, in action, performing this performing God's work. Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, James uh, Lawson uh, Jr. came to Nashville specifically. That was his task. It wasn't coincidental. Now, those of us like uh, you mentioned, uh, Jim Bevel and um, John Lewis and a lot of others of us who were just there as students, we didn't come to start a movement but Jim Lawson specifically came to Nashville in order to organize a movement. He was at Vanderbilt University, because, but he came down south because Martin Luther King asked him to. And he had to decide where he was going to go. And so he was able to go to Vanderbilt Divinity School and uh, as a student himself. And so he started holding these classes to train us in nonviolence. Kelly Miller Smith was my uh, homiletics professor, and uh, C.T. Vivian was his assistant because he was a graduate student there at the seminary. And so we had the best right there as teachers. I'm talking about on the faculty. So uh, they, they were followers of Martin Luther King. They were the local chapter, you might say, of SCLC. So uh, Kelly Miller Smith was the president. And then uh, Grimmett, another professor, was head of the NAACP state chapter. So here we had, as students, it was no coincidence that we were influenced by social change and the movement and that kind of thing. We decided that, uh, you know, we would follow our professors. And so uh, we took on to learning about this thing. And John Lewis, now I have to you know, confess that when John Lewis told me about coming to the workshops, you know, I said, no, I'm not interested in that. I got enough work to do. I was the assistant librarian as a student now, assistant librarian, janitor of the second floor. And then I voluntarily washed dishes in the kitchen. Yeah. For jobs, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. Kind of busy. yeah, right. Uh, and the reason why is because uh, I wanted to get the uh, uh, the pot liquor. <laughs> okay, <laughs> there's always some juice left after the collard greens. <laughs> I cleaned up. <laughs> That's right. I I enjoy pot liquor right now. I got some in my refrigerator. <laughs> Yeah, that was pot liquor and uh, cornbread was uh, before they had Gerber uh, baby food. Yes. Yeah, that's right. You dipped the cornbread in the pot liquor. Anyway, <laughs> so I told John Lewis I didn't have time for any uh, workshops. You know, I'm talking about I was already working. So he, but as you figured out, John Lewis is very persuasive. Yes. And he said, this is what we talk about all the time at night, you know, uh, the integration and and uh, all that discrimination that goes on and, and with people and stuff like that, et cetera. So you always relate something to what people already are doing. And that's how you get them to expand their participation. So that's the one thing you want to look at. What are they looking at? Okay. Yes. Selma, Alabama. When I went to Selma, Alabama, three groups of SNCC workers had already gone and returned to Atlanta and told uh, James Foreman, who was the executive secretary, nothing could be done in Selma. You're wasting your time. Okay? Yeah. And they all gave the same reason. And you know what the reason was? What's in that? my book. 
Black folks were too scared and white folks were too mean. These were freedom riders and sick people and all that. They had a lot of experience. And they came back and there were teams of about five, two different teams. Can't accomplish anything there. How are you going to accomplish anything with scared black folks? <laughs> okay. So when I went into Selma, Alabama, I went in doing research. The first research I did was in Atlanta. I was trying to find out where could I study mean white folk. And uh, I, 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 I did the best I could. And then I went on and I came to uh, Tuskegee, Alabama. And guess what? In the library, they had a publication, a monthly publication of the White Citizen Council. Raph Ginsburg, he was a great writer. In fact, he's the one that wrote the book, 100 Years of Lynching. He and I were in the library at the same time in Tuskegee. I didn't know him, you know, until I met him there. And we used to come at 6.30 in the morning because we worked all day and all night. We stopped for lunch. But, hey, he would find the material I wanted because I needed to know about mean white folks. I already knew about scared black folks. But I needed to learn. So it, the whole uh, involvement in the Selma movement for me was research, research. Yes. And that's the key to change. Yes. Like, for example, and I'll stop. When I talk to black folks about voter registration in Selma, Alabama, yes. I ain't going to say y'all need to go register to vote and y'all need to do that and all that. The key thing, if I said nothing else today, is finding out what is it that people want and people need and relating that to voter registration. So what happened is I would say, well, what do you think is the biggest problem here in Selma, Alabama? I talked to the individuals and one man said, well, the, the problem is that, uh, you know, we don't have any electricity in the black neighborhood. You can tell where the black neighborhood starts and the white neighborhood uh, starts because uh, black folks don't have electricity. We have to iron our clothes in, in, in coal pots. Coal pot is where you put coal in a pot and then you put your iron on there. They didn't have TV. They had radio because they had uh, batteries, okay? But no electricity. Oh, okay. I'm gathering information. I go to another person. They say, well, the biggest problem here in Selma is the roads. They're not paved. Nothing but mud and everything. And on Sundays, you get your shoes, your white shoes all messed up and everything, especially if it rains. Okay, that's the biggest problem. What do you think is the biggest problem? Education, black schools, they get $1 and the white folks get $11. Oh, okay. That's a problem for them. I went back to the same people and said, well, well, who is responsible for this problem, not getting the roads paved? The folks downtown. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, what what people downtown? Those white folks downtown? How did they get in position? Oh. <laughs> so if you want your roads paved, then you got to deal with the folks. How did they get in those positions? Oh. You see my point? Let people come to their own conclusions. You don't have to tell them. What you have to do is ask them. So what we have to do is continue to ask people questions. Time is running out, but look, every problem that we've been talking about has to do with geography, drawing lines. Yes. Redistricting. Yeah. It ain't about people. It's about drawing lines. The people are in lines. That's what they are. So therefore, the lines that are drawn around where you live or where you work or where you go to school, uh, that's what we're talking about. On a geographical level around the world, we're talking about lines, okay? And where you live across the line. So that's what we got to focus on. Why is the decisions are made in terms of your graveyard? You're talking about a line. That's right. Well, I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lafayette. You know, um, as I think if you was talking about your 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 teaching and your goals, what have you, it reminds me so much that uh before Dr. King led the successful march across the Pettus Bridge from Selma to Montgomery, before John Lewis aborted a temple across that bridge a week prior, there was Dr. Bernard Lafayette in Selma. He was doing the, the background, the groundwork, the mobilization. And I think uh, anyone that's uh, 
that's familiar with uh, what took place there. They will acknowledge the work that you've done just to prepare us for, for that in March, what have you. But you also talked a little bit about the, uh, the lines, what have you, which leads a great segue that we can just talk about uh, voting a little bit. And I, I want you to stick around, because I'd like for, to, for you to talk a little bit about that infamous case that was in the uh, District Court in Alabama back in 1960, Gomillion versus Lightfoot. But before we get into that, I would like to um, uh, speak from another good friend of ours, uh, Brother Kevin Lindsay, who's currently the CEO of Minnesota Humanity Center, and bring him into the conversation to talk about voters' rights. So stick with us after brief pause. We're going to introduce um, Brother Kevin Lindsay. Greetings. Welcome back. Welcome back, audience. The beloved community is invited to commemorate Black history and culture with an art, music, and literature exhibition featuring four powerful events during Black History Month. Go to ujamaplace.org to find the program schedule and to register to win an autographed copy of Dr. Bernard Lafayette's book, In Peace and Freedom. See contest rules for details. Commemorate Black History and Culture is presented by St. Paul Public Library, Ujamaa Place, Minnesota Humanity Center, and Public Art St. Paul in partnership with the City of St. Paul, Minnesota Arts Council, Young Rembrandts, and OMG Media. Uh, again, it's an honor and a pleasure to introduce to you a good friend of mine, been knowing him for years, all of the good work that he's doing, uh, Brother Kevin Lindsay. As I mentioned that uh, he's currently the CEO of the Minnesota Human Rights Center, but he also served as a former commissioner of the Minnesota Department of Human Rights from 2011 and 2019. And that's when I got a chance to work very closely with his brother, the great work he was doing to move the agenda forward. Mr. Lindsay led that department to prominence as a positive change agent across Minnesota and nationally, defeating a photo ID Minnesota Constitutional Amendment, issuing passage of the Banded Box Law, overseeing the nation's largest statewide school suspension settlement, and transforming how people think about diversity and inclusion. Mr. Lindsay, in his current role as the CEO of the Minnesota Humanities, Kevin seeks to create a just society that's curious, connected, and compassionate by working to create equity within schools, developing humanities programs, and when funding is made available, the Minnesota Humanities also provide grants to community of cultural organizations here. Uh, Kevin received his, his uh, degrees, um, uh, Master of Political Science and Political Science from the University of Iowa, and we will not hold that against him. <laughs> Whereas a student, he served as editor-in-chief of the Iowa Law Review. He was honored by his alma mater with the 2017 Iowa Law Review of Distinguished Alumni Award. So without further ado, um, please bring to the podcast, Brother Kevin Lindsay. Otis, thank you so much for that warm introduction. And I appreciate uh, so many lessons, which uh, Dr. Lafayette, and appreciate also the opportunity to meet with his wife today. That's just a, a cherry on top <laughs> special that she showed up. So I'm just really grateful and thankful to be part of the conversation. Take you back to 1960, sir, uh, when the lawsuit was filed in federal district court in Alabama, the Gomillion versus Lightfoot. And the argument that changed the boundaries of the city of Tuskegee disenfranchised black voters. The ruling showed the state had violated the 15th Amendment when it constructed the boundary lines between electoral districts and the purpose of denying equal representation of African-Americans. There's a small synopsis of that case. But Dr. Lafayette, uh, you live in Tuskegee today with your beautiful wife, Kate who was born and raised in Tuskegee. Tell us about that case and its relevance to voting rights today. One of the things I want to say when you look at this woman I'm married to, <laughs> you're looking at history. Her father was Booger T. Washington's office boy. Mm. <laughs> A long time ago. Okay. Mm -hmm. She knew Booger T. Washington. Her parents married in Booger T. Washington's house. Okay. George Washington Carver helped to plant Okay, our shrubbery <laughs> around the house we live in now. Very helpful. Well, okay. Visit <laughs> with my mother. So that's that's history, okay? But the whole idea is, oh, by the way, I should tell you this. About 25 black PhDs lived in Tuskegee because of the university. 
Okay, Tuskegee. It used to be Tuskegee Institute. Yeah. Well, when all these black folks got registered to vote, the present yeah. city council, you know, before these black folks could actually participate in voting, there's the white citizen council. <laughs> well, it was a citizens council. <laughs> <laughs> they they redrew the lines and put all the black folks, okay, most of them out of the city limits and created another city called Tuskegee Institute. That's where I live, Tuskegee Institute. Okay, two zip codes. So the black folks started uh, boycotting, okay, because of these people that come and read and put them out of the city. And uh, guess what? I still had to pay taxes. Where do you, where you think the taxes went to? That's what I'm talking about. So you had this uh, situation where the people started boycotting black folks. They said, if they don't want us in the city, then we won't go to the city. That's right. Her father built a supermarket. Yes, big supermarket. The first black supermarket in the whole area, okay? And he owned it. I mean, you know, he didn't just build it. You know, it was a building. He owned the supermarket. When the church was bombed in Birmingham, they also bombed his supermarket, okay? He wasn't killed. He wasn't killed. They bombed it. The bread man brought it. Instead of bringing bread, he brought bomb in the morning. Burned for two weeks. He got burned for two weeks. So the point is, we've had to suffer in order to uh, achieve what we wanted to achieve. But you know what his father did? And this is the message for today. When the uh, place was bombed, it burned for two weeks. They wouldn't put it out. He stood there in the ashes and he said, we will build again. That's the message, Terry. We're going through these things now and the suffering we're going through and people trying to take away our rights by redrawing lines. They've been lining all the time, all right? And that's how they keep you separated. Now, the history of Tuskegee goes back even further because the name is not Tuskegee, it's Tuskegee, Native American, Tuskegee. That was the name of the chief for this area. That's right, Tuskegee. Tuskegee. Mm-hmm. And you know what Tuskegee means? It represents the chief because when he got into a battle with other native tribes, he always won. But guess how he really won them over? That's how you win a fight. You win your opponents over, not win over your opponents. He used to carry medicine, food, and clothes to the ones he had defeated. And that's what Tuskegee means. Yeah. Good person. So it's a difference between defeat and the head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love it. I love it. Kevin, Mr. Lizzie, if I may ask, uh, in Dr. Book, he talked in depth about that historic decision of Gomelia versus Lightfoot. But, you know, here we go 60 years later. So we're back at the same issue. Uh, Please bring uh, your legal perspective on, on the work that you're currently advocating for voting rights and criminal justice reform. I think it's important uh, segue uh, from what Dr. Dr. Lafayette and this group initiated back then and what we what we had to deal with today. Yeah, again, Dr. Lafayette, just really appreciate being here today. It's sort of a masterclass, I really appreciate it. Yes. The work in the, in the case that you mentioned earlier, it's about line drawing and redistricting. And I think in order to understand sort of the full out assault that we have been under, it is important to sort of break down into various components when we think of voting and being able to exercise our rights. And it does begin with just line drawing, right? So are you defined within a district that you can actually galvanize support and actually win that respective district? Or are the lines drawn in a way that your power to partner with like-minded folks is so diluted that you can't win? And this has been going on since the very beginning, the formation, I would suggest, of the entire country. We tend to think of a real classic uh, example of that right now for most people is the lines that are drawn for states. So when we think of the lines drawn for states, and we think that each state has two senators, so we have this deliberative body, the United States Senate, where the majority of votes are being cast by folks that don't, our states that don't comprise a majority of people. So again, 
uh, not all offense to of our friends from Wyoming or New Mexico, but we have a situation, right, where the majority of people of color are concentrated lines drawn in states, and they represent uh, a, a majority uh, of folks quantitatively in the entire, but they don't because of the lines drawn being able to exercise power in the Senate. And what does that then mean? Is that, you know, leading Senator Mitch McConnell can determine which judges get actually heard and confirmed in the Senate. That impacts our ability to really facilitate justice uh, in the federal court systems. At the state level, a majority of states are controlled by one party that has sought to dilute the ability of folks getting to the poll and voting. And typically they use it through means of photo identification. So again, in a situation in which you would think within a democracy, increasing the ability of people to vote would be a value, something that we would want for everyone to be encouraged. And in Justin Tuskegee, winning people over doesn't appear to be the strategy, but rather to defeat those folks from having their voices elevated is the strategy. Yes. So in variety of states all across this country, you have lines being drawn to oversaturate the, the concentration of people of color in one or two small districts or disperse them in a way in which they can't win in those districts. And therefore, they never acquire uh, the capacity to influence decisions at state legislatures. Yes. So that has been going on. I would be remiss not to talk about the action that happened as relates to the Voting Rights Act. So the tremendous work that was done by Dr. Lafayette, John Lewis, and countless others like Diane Nash and others to ensure that we have a Voting Rights Act. We've had a court over the last 15 years roll back and basically eviscerate the Voting Rights Act. And again, for your listeners here, the Voting Rights Act basically did two things. It basically said from a historical basis, we have areas within our country that have historically and intentionally denied African-Americans the right to vote. And because those areas have done so, before they pass any legislation or any rules which might limit the uh, voting access for African-Americans, they had to get pre-clearance. They had to get permission from the federal government before they could enact this. So we have a case called Shelby County versus Holder uh, when Chief Justice Roberts had just got onto the court. And basically what the decision says is, you know, that happened a long time. There's no way that states would continue to act in that way. And they shouldn't have this sword hanging over their head by the federal government to kind of chop them down if they pass any legislation. None of them would do that. So in Shelby County versus Holder, we have the Supreme Court eliminating Section 5. Now, that didn't mean in that case that you couldn't bring a case of intentional discrimination, but none of these states have to do any preclearance. And what did we find out? States rushed, rushed to pass legislation limiting the ability of people to get to the polls. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's just undeniable. If you want to go to the Brennan Center or to other places, we can direct you in that space. You can just see states enacting such legislation. Then about six, seven months ago, in a case called Brnovich, the court took a look at the, the piece of legislation within the Voting Rights Act and where we have disparate and intentional discrimination, okay? And in the Brnovich case, basically what the court said is that even if you can show a uh, disparate outcome, dramatic impact on Blacks or Indigenous or Latino voters, unless you can show intent, unless you can show specific intent by the legislators, that's not going to be enough to bring forward a case. And the court sets forth additional factors beyond the voting rights legislation that you have to prove. Let me stop there just for a second. It's really hard to sue a state. You need a lot of money in which to do it. And then you're going to have to throw in that you're going to have to show intentionality. So unless you have a memo or you have almost a direct statement that the intent in passing the legislation was deny people a right to vote, 
you're not likely to win these types of cases going forward with the current composition of the court. And in the Brnovich case, to make the, the hill a little bit more difficult to climb, you have Justice Alito in his portion of the opinion saying that he's offended by the notion that an assumption could be made that a legislature might pass legislation that might have a negative impact yeah. on dis- disenfranchised, historically disenfranchised voters. So he was offended by the arguments being made in that case in Brnovich that the rules of third party ballot drop off or facilitating people to get to the polls could have a negative impact by Native Americans. He was like, no. I don't I don't I don't accept that as a proposition from a historical basis that legislators would do that. Now, again, I think a fair reading of our history, right, is that dis, historically disenfranchised communities don't always have proper access to ballot boxes on ballot day, yes. on voting day. Yes. There seems to be long lines. There seems to be a need to assist those individuals to be able to exercise their right to vote. Yes. But here you have the court saying they're not going to accept that history and they're going to say it's as if it's a complete new day. I mean, common parlance, we elected Barack. Everything's OK. Why are you back to this history? So and in the state and I'll just close here, just in the state of Minnesota, we attempted to work with the legislature, redraw lines to more adequately allow all communities of color to be able to have. Uh, the ability to exercise their vote in a meaningful way to elect people at the state level. Legislature was not able to do that. It ultimately got kicked to a special panel of judges. And where we are now, that panel of judges will issue new redistricting lines on the 15th of February or shortly thereafter. The 15th is the first day that they would uh, come up to the deadline, but they would have some additional time, like 30 days, in which to get that done. And just as Dr. Lafayette had said, there was a couple of districts Uh, It's really hard to see how that line wasn't drafted with some political mischief in mind. And hopefully the court will address that. Kevin, if you don't mind, uh, keep the mic for a moment. And um, as you see on this call, I have a new gentleman and a couple of my staff on this call. You know, uh, it was such a a call for action of the request. And we have seen uh, uh, throughout how this thing has been carved off, shaved down. But uh, any... any, um, action assignments that you can give us that we can advocate for voting rights and criminal justice reform? Anything that off the top, some couple of things that you can suggest that we can take back uh, throughout our organization in the community we serve? One thing that I really appreciate Dr. Lafayette saying within his remarks, sort of making it plain for folks and seeing how they're impacted, kind of leading them in that way. So one of the issues that JAMA and your leadership has been working on is what is sometimes referred to as restore the vote. So in Minnesota, uh, we have a lot of individuals because of one bad decision that they have made in the past that they're not able to exercise their right to vote. So how do we address that situation? And hearkening back to the words of Dr. Lafayette, there are individuals who don't or who are white, who don't identify as a person of color, who are impacted by that. And you would think that there would be common ground to be able to find a way to restore the vote for all individuals within this space. We got close, I think, within the Dayton administration about six, seven years ago. I think now is a good time to come back, revisit that conversation, have a discussion all throughout the state on that respective issue. I think um, it's, it's a challenge, but I do, I'm really hearkened by his words about really making it plain concerning how people see themselves within a decision. Not telling them, but just giving them information to allow them to reach the conclusion. And I think if we did that on this issue, I think we could make some progress. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Dr. Lafayette, uh, anything come to your mind, uh, some action steps that we can uh, care for in terms of sharing with the organization and our family about how we can advocate, uh, bring attention to the woes of voting rights, any kind of criminal justice reform? Any, you have any comments on that? Uh, yes, I, I just want to share with you uh, that as we go forward, it's important 
to use Martin Luther King's teachings uh, to help win people over. <laughs> uh, one of the things that happened to me when I was in Selma, Alabama, was uh, uh, one of the a white men came up to me and said, uh, are you the one that's helping black folks uh, register to vote? And uh, I didn't know him, of course, and he looked a little older. And, you know, I was young during that period, remember? Okay. And I said, yes, because it was true. I was helping black folks, you know, register to vote by encouraging other black folks to recruit them, et cetera. And I took a special role. I trained people to train folks. And that's exactly what I do today. That's why a lot of folks don't know me. And that's fine because I want them to know other folks. Guess what? If you ask Jesse Jackson, he'll say that I trained him. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't mind. So, yes, I told this white man that I do help black folks get registered to vote. He said, I got a bunch of them that works for me on my farm. You know, he was a tenant farmer. Yeah. And he said, uh, you know, he got, uh, well, he got tenants who are farmers. And he said, uh, would you help them get registered to vote? I said, yes, of course. You got all these black folks here working for you? Okay. Now, his motive was he had a son who was graduating from college and had planned to return to Selma, Alabama and run for public office. And he knew that all those black folks working for him would vote for him. But I would not deny these black folks the right to vote. Right. Okay. I told him, yes, bring them on. We'll get them all registered to vote. Absolutely. And in those days, you had to sign. If you were going to register to vote, after you fill out your form, you had to have a voter, a person who was already a voter. To stand for you. That's right. To vouch for you. And he vouched for all of them. I think he had about 20-some who were working for him. Wow. My point is, he might vote for his son the first go-round, but hey, <laughs> he could vote. They, all these black folks could vote for the president of the United States, and they could vote for... Uh, 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 other the governor, and they can because you only register one time, you see, right? Okay, yeah. But the point is, it's the right thing to do, so don't deny people based on the fact that uh, they might have their own personal motive in mind. The question is, how will it help the larger group of people? Now, I got to quickly tell you this Selma is unique, you know why. On the Freedom Rides, yes. you know, coming down Highway 80, we were coming from uh, Birmingham, going on down to Montgomery. Did you know we bypassed Selma? We didn't go by the, uh, downtown Selma. They had a bus station. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you know why? They had a mob waiting for us at the bus station in Selma. Good group. Yeah. And the buses, Greyhound bus bypassed them. Wow. Went on by, okay. Now, very quickly, the white folks in Selma were angrier with the other white folks in Alabama than they were black folks in Selma hmm. or Dallas County. You know why? Because they moved the capital of Alabama from Dallas County down to Montgomery. The capital of Alabama has not always been in Montgomery. It was in Dallas County, Cahaba. <laughs> and they were angrier because I heard them. I heard them when I used to listen to them in the drugstore. They say that uh, uh, they stole our capital. I thought they were talking about money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, they were talking about capital. The capital of Alabama Ooh. used to be there in Dallas County. Ooh. And that's why they had buttons. The folks in, in uh, Sheriff Clark and all of them, they yeah. had buttons said never. You might have done it in Montgomery. You might have done it in Birmingham. Yes, but not here. Okay, not here. but not here. Not here. That's what they were after. They were after showing and proving. That's why they were so violent. But now my final remark is this. There was not one black person from Selma, Alabama, who was shot and killed. Okay? Mm -hmm. No, not one house was bombed in Selma. Not one church was bombed in Selma. I know why. Listen. Because <laughs> the banks in Selma had mortgages on there. <laughs>
<laughs> control. <laughs> Which meant that you would have bombed hell in church. <laughs> <laughs> so get you a bogus. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. No. <laughs> I was just teasing about that. But, uh, but there's a reason why. And that's why my point is you must study deeply. Always never stop doing your research. That's true. Yes. Learning things. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Lafayette. This is just riveting. Uh, uh, as you can see, we can just have this discussion go on and on because it's so educational. It's so breathtaking to um, understand where we've been now. Uh, uh, the, the names that you talked about that you study with and and that you learn from are just names that jumps out the history pages for us and to have you here to quote and be there for us. Uh, we, we just love it. And I want you to know that we are very much aware of your stake in this history as well. As much as you try to stay in the background, your name is front more. We are well aware of your work. And that's why I was so proud to, um, as you gentlemen, to, uh, to really to uh, promote uh, your recent book, which is entitled In Peace and Freedom, that we can make available for our listening audience that's going to be available at all of the uh, St. Paul's public libraries here too, because they need to know this story. Uh, Kevin, my brother, thank you so much for joining us. Um, the insight, uh, the talk was going on, I think it's important that we use that information to, um, to, uh, to educate our population about how this thing has, has methodically and painfully intentionally been stripped away and with and some of the legislation that's been passed. And the only way that we can have a united front is to use our constitutional right is to vote. And I promise you that we're going to answer that call uh, to assist you in your work and to educate others and to be proponents of everybody exercising their right to vote, which mm-hmm. is very dear to me. Very dear to me. Uh, I proudly wear my I vote sticker because uh, I want everybody to feel that, feel that proud of it, that you're shaping our future by doing that. Gentlemen, and Kate, Thank you for joining us. So great to see you. I just want to give you for letting me be here. Thank you. It was a great job. We appreciate that. Thank you so much. And uh, I give you a hearty and thankful thank you from from the Ujama family. Again, to Dr. Bernard Lafayette, the author of In Peace and Freedom, and Mr. Kevin Lindsay, who is the current CEO of Minnesota Humanity Center. And keep up the fight, my brother. I want you to know that uh, you have soldiers in in this foxhole with you. We are there to. um, to help you spread this message that need to go by. So um, I want to thank you all. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, Mr. Lindsay. Thank you. Thank you. Very proud of what you're doing, too. <laughs> you're, for, you're helping to fulfill nice to meet the dream. You're doing it. You. Dr. Lafayette, I can hear you all day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. Yes. Okay. I mean, that was just, that just, that whole time brought me back to being there in June. Because <laughs> we could have sat on that grass for another two hours. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Yeah. You thank you, brother, you, thank you, you brother Kevin. Thank you, brother Kevin, for that knowledge. It was so wealth of knowledge oh, man. informing me. <laughs> I'm just on fire with it. I appreciate that. Yes. Oh, thank you. You're very great. welcome. Great. Dr. Lafayette, when you said make it plain, I was thinking about uh, when I was commissioner of human rights. And I adjusted the workforce goals from 11% to 32% for people of color. Wow. And people were like, well, what does that actually mean? <laughs> and I said, okay, well, the state probably in the next, and this was before we had built the Viking Stadium. Yeah. So I said, we're going to build this Viking Stadium. So that's about $4 billion, right, wow. of construction. So yeah. do you want 11% or do you want to be competing for 32%, right? <laughs> Yes. Well, okay. Now I understand why. This is important. That's a good one. Yeah. So, well, I really jump in for a second. I just want to say thank you to Dr. Lafayette and his beautiful wife. Um, your insight is always groundbreaking for me. Um, you're such an eloquent speaker, man. I, I want to be like you one day for sure. <laughs> and. Uh, Mr. Kevin Lindsay, um, I'm definitely grateful for all the, the work you're doing in the state as far as voting. I think it's really essential for the youth to understand how important it is our votes are. Um, with me being um, 25, a lot of young people don't really care to vote. And I think that it's important that we stress that point and that we stress what we're up against. Just understanding how to get over obstacles, you know, studying and testing before we protest, for sure. So 
Thank you, guys. It's been an amazing time, and I appreciate all the words of wisdom. Thank you. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for showing your son. I think uh, if there's anything, we uh, it showed that we're doing this work for him. That's an option for him. So thank you for sharing it with your with your, with your young child, and it, it gives us something that inspires us to work harder here. Yes, sir. Thank you, Otis. Again, thanks. And to our listening audience, we want to invite you to listen to a Black Man Sketch everywhere you listen to podcasts, and also at ujamaplace.org. Uh, we give love and thanks to our beloved community. We hope you will join us to commemorate Black History 2022. Again, thank you for joining us. Today.